Hello, St Andrews, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We pray that as we hear it, that you would call to our mind that we are hearing the word of the God who holds us and our ways in his hand. And so pray that we would be humble, that as we come to know what you are saying here, that we would learn from it, that we would respond with humble, obedient faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please have Daniel 5 open in front of you as we continue our journey through this book. I'll start with this quote from Merlin the Magician. It is the curse of man that he forgets. It's the curse of man that he forgets. I don't know if you're much of a history buff, whether you enjoy history and exploring history, whether your own personal history or ancient or modern history. I wonder if you think we can learn much from history. I suspect some would say of history that uh, life is about living in the moment. Life is lived forward, not backwards. And I guess especially at the moment in the grip of a pandemic, who has time to think about things of the past uh, we want to just grapple with today and its problems? And yet others would say, yes, we can learn much from history. Uh, learning from real history is useful. But when it comes to things like what we have in front of us here in Daniel 5, when it comes to the Old Testament and the stories of the Old Testament, we don't often view them as relevant. Even as Christians, we can feel that way. And perhaps even sometimes we don't even view them as real. It's common to read stories like uh, that in the book of Daniel and conclude that they are just that, stories. You come to a chapter like Daniel chapter 5 and you read of characters like Belshazzar and it's easy to sort of have in your mind as we hear this story, maybe the latest Disney movie or Pixar or something like that. It, it all seems a little bit surreal and distant. Books like Daniel, as a result, have faced significant challenges from uh, historical critics who look at the testimony of the Bible and argue that it, at best it's just metaphor and at worst it's just plain wrong history. But the claim of the scriptures is that Daniel is real history. And as we'll read in Daniel chapter 5, the claim is that we must learn from the things that we know of history recorded here. Let me give you an example of the sort of challenge that the book of Daniel has faced, but also I think an example of how it's vindicated as real history. If you were listening as uh, uh, the Bible was read for us earlier, Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, we read of a new king in Babylon sometime after Nebuchadnezzar, the king Belshazzar, who's in charge of Babylon. But by the end of the chapter, verse 30, Belshazzar has died and with him the Babylonian Empire comes to an end as the Medo-Persian Empire takes over. But here's our problem. All the historical evidence uh, in other sources points to a man by the name of Nabonidus being the last of the Babylonian kings. He was the one on the throne when the Medo-Persian Empire took over. So the obvious question that the historians ask is who the heck is Belshazzar? He seems like a fictitious figure. And for many years that was the claim. No trace of him was found. And so the historians dismissed Daniel as uh, a work of fiction. But fascinatingly, in the last 100 to 150 years, significant archaeological evidence has been unearthed that shows that for uh, approximately 10 years of Nabonidus's rule, the last king of Babylon, approximately 10 years of that rule, he was far from Babylon. Uh, he was forever off on journeys, either on military conquests or more often than not, as a, as a religious enthusiast, he was in, uh, chasing after moon gods, his personal favourite. 
And uh, during that time, as he traipsed around the world, a man by the name of Belshazzar was appointed in Babylon as his co-regent, essentially acting prime minister, acting king. That's who Belshazzar is. It's fascinating that this has proved even more the case as we look in this chapter, Daniel 5, when he offers Daniel the third highest role in the kingdom. He can't offer him the second because he's the second. And so that's who Belshazzar is. And so the more the archaeological evidence is uh, unearthed, the more it turns out that the Bible, as we read it here in Daniel 5, is more accurate and more detailed history than many other historical documents. Nabonidus off with his moon gods and important, importantly off with the army, which is why Babylon fell so easily the night that's recorded for us here, uh, had left power in the hands of his drunken son, as he's described here in Daniel 5. And so what we have here in front of us in Daniel 5 is not a work of fiction, not an interesting story, but real history of living people grappling with the authority of the living God. And Daniel 5 verse 22, if you've got it open there, says that this history is history that we can know, that we must know if we're to understand how to live rightly under God's rule in his world. And so let's read Daniel 5 together. Let's read history together and let us be those who learn from this history. Uh, Daniel 5 is a story of the end of an empire, the Babylonian empire, the one that seemed so powerful and pompous back in chapter 1 by fire. Chapter 5 is coming to an end. But it is also the story of the continued reign of God as king. And uh, here's a potted summary of the chapter as we had it read to us. After Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon uh, declined rapidly. He was the great and, and most successful ruler of the Babylonian empire. There was a series of kings after him. Then Nabonidus brought some stability. He was a powerful military leader, but he would spend lengthy time away from Babylon, which weakened the power of Babylon in search of these moon gods. Belshazzar, his son, is left in charge, and that's who we have here on the throne in Daniel 5. As Babylon declines, though, the Medo-Persian Empire is growing in strength and stature. And as Belshazzar sits on the throne in Babylon, it's, the Persian army is essentially at the gates as this party in chapter 5 happens. And so with this rule of Babylon incredibly fragile and seemingly coming to an end, Belshazzar decides to hold a huge party. It, it seems like some sort of strange attempt to ignore reality or even just to, to assure all these cronies that all, all is well. Loads of wine is drunk. I mean, that seems to be the main theme of the opening verses. And emboldened by the wine, Belshazzar commands the vessels, the cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the, the temple in Jerusalem, remember that in chapter one, be brought in and that they'll drink from it. And while the command itself could be just seen as a, a drunken whim, it's more likely a public challenge to the legacy of the great King Nebuchadnezzar, who you remember, as we've seen in previous chapters, regularly acknowledged the Most High, the, the God of Jerusalem. And so Belshazzar raises the cup of silver and gold, and in the end he praises silver and gold as his gods, uh, throwing down the gauntlet to the God who owns these vessels to do something about it. And so he does. While the gods of silver and gold remain mute in the face of the crisis of the enemy at the gates, the true God has a message to give Belshazzar. And so a hand appears on the wall next to him and it begins writing on the wall. And so scared is Belshazzar that we're told that his knees knock and his legs give way. He ends up on his knees before the living God, whether he likes it or not. 
And he calls out uh, as he sees this writing on the wall to the wise men of Babylon. We're, we've seen this pattern before, haven't we? As the kings of Babylon call upon their, their wise men to explain it. He offers them all sorts of rewards again, purple coats and gold chains and positions of authority. But the wise men, not only can they not uh, interpret the writing on the wall, they can't even see it. And so Belshazzar freaks out even more. Enter the queen, or more literally, the queen mother. It's probably Nebuchadnezzar's wife still in the royal palace. And uh, into this chaos, she reminds Belshazzar, you know, you've, there's always been a man in your kingdom, Daniel, who is a spiritual man who's connected to the gods. And he, he's always been able to help Nebuchadnezzar. He interprets dreams. He can solve difficult problems. Why don't you ask him? He'll be able to help you. And so Belshazzar calls Daniel in and he, it seems like he's never met Daniel. By, by this stage, it seems like Daniel's a backbencher again. And Daniel, if you can explain this, I'm going to give you uh, great riches and honour. You'll be the third in the kingdom. You can have purple robes and gold chains. And Well, Daniel basically says, take your gifts and shove it. But I tell you, I will tell you what the writing means. And so first, before he tells him what the writing means, he gives him some context as to why God has written this message. Do you see the context? Verse 18, your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendour. Then verse 20, but when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory and until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth and he sets them over anyone he wishes. That's the things we saw last week in chapter 4. You see, Belshazzar's problem is a history problem. He's forgotten history. Uh, More likely, though, rather than just forgetting it, he's arrogantly ignoring the pattern of history that we saw with Nebuchadnezzar. What was it that he should have learned? How should it have changed things for him? Well, we don't have to guess. Uh, Daniel spells it out for us in verse 22. Do you see it there? But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. You knew how the pattern of history played out. You knew that God is king. You've seen how this plays out, but you've just ignored it and refused to humble yourself before this king. You see, three things Belshazzar should have learned from the pattern of history before him. Three things that, as we read Daniel 5, that we must learn too. Three things that should humble us. Now, here's the first of them. Uh, we see the pattern of humanity that Belshazzar shows us here, Nebuchadnezzar showed us here, and we show, us, show in our own behaviour, is that humanity sets itself up against God. That's what history shows us. And you see that at the start of verse 23. That's what Belshazzar has done, set himself up against the God of heaven. And it's an attitude that we've seen all throughout the book. You remember back in Daniel 2, there was a vision that God gave Nebuchadnezzar that basically said this, in the midst of the rise and falls of kingdoms, I'm setting up a kingdom that will be forever and it will cover the whole earth. And so Nebuchadnezzar's response ultimately in Daniel 3 was to try and establish his own forever kingdom and to call the nations together and to bow down before him. Uh, By Daniel chapter 4, he's surveying this amazing kingdom that he has built and he concludes that he's done it by his might, by his will, which prevails, and for his glory. It's the human response to God, a foolish rebellion that we saw writ large last week. The heart of sin, do you remember it from Daniel 4? It is concluding that I'm on the throne of my life. I'm in charge. My will be done. And so here in Daniel 5, this setting up of our own rule against God's rule takes a very specific expression. Uh, Verse 23 
the cups, as we said before, they're taken, uh, they were taken as a prize from the temple in Jerusalem to say that the Babylonian gods are in charge, not the living God of Jerusalem. And now they're just used for some sort of drinking party at this uh, uh, drinking game at this party. And it, it is in many ways a calculated mockery of the God of Jerusalem and a deliberate misuse of things that he has declared to be uh, have a sacred purpose. And Belshazzar is saying, you know what? I'm in charge in this kingdom. I'll do whatever I want and I'll do whatever I want with the things that God has said are precious. Now, in this, we have, I think, another powerful picture of what sin looks like before our God. Sin, yes, says I get to rule in my life. But one of the expressions of that self-rule is this. It means that I get to use the things of this world however I choose. I get to ignore a purpose that God may have given them and I get to set my own purpose for them and use them however I want. I do it in misusing God's purpose for them and really it mocks his purpose for them. And in one thing, sense you could think, well, it's just cups. What does it matter? Just cups of silver and gold and bronze and wood and things like that. He's just drinking from them. It's no big deal. But consider what their purpose was in the temple. They were purposed to be offered to God as thanksgiving offerings. These were the ways that God's people would honour God and worship him through these vessels and that was to be done in the temple. That's where people met with God and worshipped him. Now, in the New Testament, we're told that that purpose of honouring and worshipping God doesn't just happen in a temple anymore. It happens in all of life. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, in fact, that God views our own bodies as his dwelling place. The, we're meant to use our bodies in a way that honours him. And more than that, Romans chapter 12 says, in view of his mercy towards us, we're meant to offer our whole lives as a living sacrifice, as a, our lives are purpose to honour and worship him. And yet, 21st century Sydney and really any city you could think of in our era is filled with people who proudly and fearlessly rebel against God by misusing the things of his world that he has declared to be sacred and purposed to honour him. I mean, there's so many different examples. Let me give you a, a couple of examples. Uh, for instance, marriage is sacred to God. We're told that in the scriptures. It's, it's purpose to honour him. And yet, as a culture, we treat it like a disposable plaything often or an identity politics prize. That's what marriage is to us. It's misusing the purpose he gave it for. Uh, life is sacred to God, very sacred as the giver and the author of life. Uh, and yet the start of life and the end of life in our culture is treated with, well, a profoundly tragic weightlessness. Uh, it's disposable. Uh, sexuality is sacred to God. He's given it for a purpose that honours him and to be used in certain way. And yet we treat it as, well, either a self-focused identity marker, that's what sexuality is in our culture, or a mindless amusement. Our work even is sacred. It's meant to honour him. The way we work with the gifts that he has given us is meant to give him glory. And yet we turn that around and we use it as a means to our own glory and our own significance. Even our words that we use are sacred. He says none of them are to be wasted. They're purpose to honour him, to speak of him, to build others up. And yet the way we use words is to tear down and to trade truth in for lies if it suits us. These are some of the examples where we see that worshipping God, which used to just happen in the temple, is meant to happen in all of life. And what we end up doing when we choose to self-rule is we say, you know what, I know you've given me these things to honour you with, but I'm going to either honour myself with them or I'm going to use them however I want. Uh, 
Our world is full of people who live in proud and unafraid rebellion against God, assuming that they can mock him and his purposes without consequence. But Daniel stands before Belshazzar, unafraid to speak truth to power, and says essentially this, uh, paraphrase it really from Galatians 6. He says, God will not be mocked. That's why he's writing on your wall right now. Now, more on that in a moment, but here's the second thing that Belshazzar should have learnt from history. Not just that humanity sets itself up against God, but humanity ends up, as it does that, worshipping created things that we misuse rather than the creator. And do you see the, the twist? Do you see the path uh, of verse 23? They, they misuse these cups of silver and gold, but in the end, the irony is that they end up worshipping and praising gods of silver and gold. The very things that they're misusing become their idols, the things that they worship. You see, refusing to honour and worship the living God doesn't actually lead to proud independence. It leads to slavery to and worship of created things. That's the picture here in um, Babylon, uh, Daniel chapter 5. It's also the picture that we're told of all humanity in Romans chapter 1. Uh, take a note of Romans chapter 1, verse 21 to 25 and read it later and see how it follows this exact pattern, history repeating itself for all humanity. Knowing these things, knowing there is a God, knowing that from creation, knowing that in ourselves, and yet just like Belshazzar, setting ourselves up against that God, I'll be in charge, and then ending up worshipping created things rather than the creator. That's the picture of humanity. That's the lesson of history. And the conclusion Here's the conclusion about Belshazzar's life and all human life before God. Verse 23 of uh, Daniel 5, you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. All that you're doing, all that you're using, it's all in his hand and you're not honouring him with it. Now we'll be, uh, and we're back at the point of Galatians 6, aren't we? Here is a God who sees us behaving that way in his world where he rules, where he has given us these things for a purpose and he will not be mocked. He will not let it happen. And so Belshazzar receives this message, verse 24. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote this inscription. This is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. And here's what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered your days. You who think you rule and choose what you will do each day, he has set the boundary on how many days and now they're coming to an end. Secondly, Tekel, God has weighed you on the scales. He's weighed this huge, significant, independent, self-absorbed life that you live and he's weighed it and there's nothing to it. It's fallen short because it's not living out its purpose. And thirdly, Parson, your kingdom will be divided and given to another. This pretend pretend crown that you wear will have to be handed back. It's not yours. Uh, This is the path of human history that we must learn. As we read, remember, at the end of chapter 4, verse 37, those, anyone who walks in pride before God as king, he will humble. That's what he's doing with Belshazzar. Uh, This is God's testimony actually about all of us. That's what history should show us. Romans 3.23 puts it this way, speaking of all of us, not just Belshazzar, it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all been weighed and found wanting. And so what hope is there? Well, our only hope is not making the mistake that Belshazzar makes, verse 22, refusing to learn from things that he knows to be true. Our only hope is to trust 
these things are true and to trust the only way that God has made to rescue arrogant rebels like us, and that is his own king, King Jesus. You know, Christianity, I said this last week, Christianity is not a philosophy to sort of add on to life. It's not a panacea for our felt needs or gaps that we may feel. It is news of a rescue for rebels. Now, let me show you that as as we come towards an end, why only Jesus can rescue us. Let me show you what we must learn and trust and respond to if we are not to make the mistake Belshazzar makes. And I'll show you why only Jesus can rescue from the three words that God writes on Belshazzar's wall. Do you see them there? Firstly, the word numbered. Uh, The declaration for Belshazzar and all of us is that we are numbered. Our days will come to an end. He set the boundary. And the reason the days will come to an end is that the wages of our sin of self-rule, the wages of sin, Romans 6 says, is death. Your days are numbered because of your sin. And yet here's what Jesus does. Here's what God does for his son. He chose, Isaiah says, to be numbered with the sinners, to be amongst us, to stand in our place, to represent us, to take the force of the blow for us. Or, or Colossians 1 puts it this way, he, was cho- he chose to be numbered among the dead. That's where we found him because he's in our place. The judgment that rightly falls on us because of our rebellion, having our days numbered, that falls on him. God's anger at our rebellion falls on him. It is, Isaiah says, it's only by his wounds you can be healed. And why is he enough? Why can he do that for us? Why can he stand in our place? Well, that's the second word on the wall, Wade. You know, when God weighs our life, when we live in proud self-independence, we fall way short of the purpose that he's given us to live rightly under his rule. And there's absolutely nothing in my hand that I can bring that will justify that rebellion before God. Nothing can justify it. And yet Jesus, his life was weighed and it's found worthy. God the Father says of Jesus, his son, this is my son I'm well pleased with. He's perfect. And his obedience is perfect. He stands in our place. His life is the weighty life we should have lived but can't. And so he is able to declare in his final breath on the cross as he dies in our place, enough, fulfilled, full, done, completed, worthy. He's talking about our rescue. He's able to do it. Numbered, weighed, and finally kingdom removed. That's the word for us. We in our self-rule will come to an end. One day the living God will say your days are numbered and ending and the toy crown that you're wearing needs to go back in the box. But of Jesus, as he died and then conquered death at his resurrection, do you know what he said? He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I am king of the whole show and I will be forever. But then he makes this gracious and incredible invitation. He says to us, my kingdom has arrived, repent and believe. Come into my kingdom, be part of it with me. This is the gospel. And as Daniel says to Belshazzar in verse 22, and I now say really to anyone who is listening to this, who has not come to Jesus for this rescue, who continues to stubbornly hold to self-rule, I humbly say to you, you know this to be true. History shows you this. We're shown the testimony here. And you may have known it for some time that Jesus is king, or you may have only just recently come to understand that. But here's the thing, however long you've known it, you can't ignore it. That's Belshazzar's play. He saw history play out with Nebuchadnezzar and he ignored it. Belshazzar knew it, but he refused to humble himself, we're told, verse 22. And you see his foolish response in verse 29, even as he hears the testimony on the wall, he foolishly still clings to power and he offers Daniel all sorts of rewards and a share in a pretend kingdom. But Daniel says nothing in response. 
There's nothing more to say. Belshazzar's moment of opportunity to respond is gone. It reminds me of Jesus before Herod is. Herod is tickled that Jesus is before him and he gets to ask him questions. He's fascinated, but Jesus offers him nothing. He says nothing. The moment has passed for Herod. Just like the moment passes for the rich young ruler in the other passage that we had read, uh, night after night after night, opportunity to see that there was a God who had given him everything he had, and yet he refused. And so God says, tonight, this will all be taken from you. And so I say to you, as we listen to this testimony, don't miss the moment. This chapter has a message for anyone who lives without God. The writing is on the wall for you. Your self-rule is coming to an end. You, like me, have been weighed and found wanting, fallen way short of God's glory. Your life is actually on loan from the author of life. And if you live using the gifts he gives you, your life and your ways to worship vain gods that we create for ourselves, then we like, are just like the last king of Babylon. History reminds us that there is coming a day when we will be brought short. And all Belshazzar had to go on was the experience of his predecessor. We have the full testimony of the scriptures declaring this news to us to say, you know this. What if God was to weigh your life tonight as he did the rich young ruler? This world is littered with broken relics of once great empires, once great men, once great women. God says to each one of us, you are not king. That throne belongs to another and his memorial is not a broken statue or a gravestone or a plaque or a photo album or a museum or a eulogy or whatever it may be. His, his memorial is an empty tomb and he doesn't lie in it uh, decaying in the dust. He is risen King of Kings and Lord of Lords forever. And even now as the day when he will come and weigh our lives comes closer, he continues to offer terms of peace, forgiveness, his life in our place. His forgiveness for a life of rebellion and the hope of sharing in his forever kingdom. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you patiently speak this word of your King, our King, your Son, Jesus. We thank you that you speak it, that we may repent and believe, that we may humble ourselves before you, the one who holds our life and all our ways in your hand. May we who know this, Humble ourselves before you. In Jesus' name, amen.